This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how's your Tuesday panning out? Hope I find you very well this afternoon. Glad you can be part of the Country Hour today. You'll be spending some time in the Kimberley very shortly, just having a bit of a poke around the Ord Valley because drones are being used in the fight against full armyworm. You'll head off to the Kimberley uh, just before news headlines at half past 12 today. And normally, you know how it is, lots of rain is really good for the farming sector. But on this occasion... There has been a downside. In that recent storm just over the weekend, some sheep on farms near Albany got caught out in water that was simply too deep for them. I don't think they stood much of a chance. They tried to go to the trees for shelter, but the the water just got too high in the end. We tried to walk through the waist-deep water to get a few out off the banks, but then the next plan was the tinny and trying to get like a group of 20 put 10 in a tinny and took them across the flood water to the edge and then um, went back to the other 10 and put them in the tinny, which was quite heavy sort of sheep when they're filled with water, the wolves filled with water. And Chris Ayres is going to tell you the full story of what happened in that rescue of the sheep. Uh, after the cross to the Bureau of Meteorology today, just after half past 12, the sad news is he wasn't able to save all of the sheep and they weren't able to find that higher ground. But that full story from Chris a little later this hour. It is 7 past 12 here on the Country Hour, and Andrew Forrest's Tatarang Agri-Food has purchased a $20 million stake in Tasmanian fish farming giant Huon Aquaculture. So does this investment mean that a Geraldton kingfish farm, which Huon announced back in 2018, is any closer to going ahead. Well, Sam Baker is a private wealth advisor with the Shadforth Financial Group. He says Andrew Forrest's 7% share in Huon doesn't get him a spot on the company's board, but it does give him a position of influence. There's a fairly tight share registry with Huon. The Benders own about 52%. Uh, industry Super Fund, Australian Super own around 12%, and now with Andrew Forrest owning around 7%. It's probably unlikely there'll be any changes to the board at this point, although uh, it may well lead to perhaps some influence on the company, uh, uh, perhaps at a a general meeting or at their next profit result. Do you think that Twiggy Forrest could consider trying to get on the board anyway? Look, I think a 7% stake in the company probably isn't at this stage enough of a shareholding to demand a board seat with Huon, but potentially... Uh, there are some mechanisms that he can use with the shareholding he's now got to potentially start to look to um, have some influence on the company. Do you think it could be the start of further investment? Have you heard around the traps whether there's any indication that Twiggy Forrest could be interested in a bigger stake? Well, look, Andrew Forrest has certainly been looking to invest in the aquaculture industry around Australia. Primarily, that has been in Western Australia. This is obviously the first move into the Tasmanian aquaculture industry. 
Um, he does obviously have the financial uh, ability um, to be able to increase the stake. I suppose the issue he may find is that getting hold of, of, of fuel and aquaculture shares, given it is so tightly held, might be difficult at this point. Do you know what sort of price he got those shares at and was it a good buy? So he paid uh, $2.48 or about $20 million for about 7% of the company. If we look at what's happened in the last 12 months, Australian Super paid $3 per share for their uh, 9% stake in the $60 million capital raising last year. So he has bought uh, the Hewan Aquaculture shares at, at near record lows. Hewan doesn't have the best uh, rap in the media at the moment. What do you think has attracted uh, Twiggy to Hewan Aquaculture? Why do you think he's done this? Look, I think this has been a... The, the, the Andrew Forrest-backed family company has looked to invest in the aquaculture industry. Obviously, Tasmania do have some major players in that industry and it looks as if he's trying to increase that geographical exposure at this point. Well, this, do you have any uh, indication or have you heard anything around the traps that this might push uh, or give Hewan the confidence to expand further in Geraldton or in WA? Uh, I'm not too sure about that. Specifically, what I would say is that the company back in February did announce quite a disappointing profit result and, and as a result of that they did flag a strategic review of the business operations and that did include uh, potential, uh, potential transaction around um, some, some suitors that had been looking at perhaps even taking control of the company. Um, potentially if that was to occur and owners were to change that could lead to an, an increase in perhaps some WA uh, aquaculture exposure. Sam Baker, he's a private wealth advisor with the Shadforth Financial Group and he was speaking to Fiona Breen about that purchase, the Tatarang Group buying a $20 million stake in Hewan Aquaculture. Just a little bit of background for you. In 2018, Hewan was granted a lease and a licence for a 2,200 hectare stake of the Midwest Aquaculture Zone off the Geraldton Coast. Last week, as you heard here, it was revealed the state government's $10 million fish nursery, which was to be built in Geraldton supplying fish to Hewan, is now under review. And that review was dependent upon the state government securing an off-take agreement with a customer for the fish. 11 past 12 here on the Country Hour. To Carnarvon now, where growers are frustrated over delays to get their hands on some flood recovery support, which was promised almost four months ago. And they're also worried about what could happen in the future. Now, you might remember in early February of this year, Carnarvon experienced its worst flooding in 11 years after some big summer rains filled the Gascoigne River. And one of the worst hit areas was the horticultural district west of Bibrawarra Crossing. It represents almost 40% of Carnarvon's production area. Rural reporter James Liveris joined a group of growers in Carnarvon just to find out how they're faring. Well, this morning I'm joined by a few growers at the Carnarvon Growers Association headquarters. And just for a bit of context, I have with me a press release from Premier Mark McGowan in February. And it reads, a re-elected McGowan Labor government will immediately establish a $1 million fund to help Carnarvon growers recover from this month's floods. Now, Phil Frizzup, your property was hit hard by the flood. We're a few months down the line. How are you feeling? Yeah, we're really frustrated that there has been very little action from the department and the premiers. You know, we've been waiting for four months. Basically, the land we've 
had that's been damaged by the floods of 2006 have been we haven't been able to use and we won't be able to access them for the rest of the year the way things are going so just the our inability to you know produce an income from a land that we should be producing income through no indirect fault of our own is not the right place to be at the moment can you take us back to what actually happened yeah um, phil byron banana grower north river road carnarvon uh yeah back in february when we had this large river flow event we wouldn't call it a major flooding event the water levels were predicted to be up towards seven metres. They didn't quite reach that, but it seems that the uh, modelling of the levee system that's been put in place has deflected water further to the west side of Bibblewarra Bore Road. So people on the north and south side of the river were adversely affected from these river flows, which has damaged topsoils, gully infrastructures, and um, the government promised a million dollars for soil replenishment. Uh, the search has been on for suitable soil, but that seems to have been hitting brick walls and um, the lack of information coming from the Minister's office, the Ag Department, Department of Water, is just uh, deafening. It just doesn't seem to be going anywhere and um, everyone's just suffering as a consequence. How worried are you if this doesn't get fixed by next year? Well, Rod Sweetman, I'm a grower on the south side of the river on uh, Margaret Row. We were, I guess, not a- affected as bad as a lot of other people were, but we still caught more than we should have from a-, a flood event as small as this one was. My particular concerns are in relation to the government's good intentions uh, and announcement of funding to get fill to growers uh, that- that's topsoil replacement to growers who needed to get on with the business. I know the uh, land issues, the clearance issues, the native title issues, I know that they are of, of consequence in this process, but it's been an inordinate period of time and still nothing has happened. They've quantified the amount of soil that's needed, about 38,000 cubic metres. In the scheme of things, it's not a massive amount of soil and um, it's difficult to believe that there's not an area somewhere that's available, accessible for growers to be able to replenish their soils. But so that, that's the immediate issue, is still this lingering issue over being able to fill holes in your access tracks and paddocks and get on with the job of growing. It's the longer-term issue. This flood was, it was unique for a flood that height in the amount of damage that it did, and we're particularly concerned you know, of the implications in a bigger event. Uh, there have been flood mitigation works uh, put in place and that was supposed to ameliorate the problem for a large amount of the industry and growers, and it, and it has. But there have been consequences for that where some of the problems have been transferred further downstream as a consequence of protecting one area. Another area is now being disproportionately affected. And we're particularly concerned that there seems to be a reluctance to release the remodelling based on data that was put into the model as a consequence of this flood event. So clearly, you know, we're getting more and more concerned by the day that that's not going to be good news. So if it's not, we need to know what the government's got in train to be able to mitigate that problem into the future because another event in our area or anywhere west of Bibbulwarra Bore Crossing, if people knows where, know where that is, it, it's an area that where there's probably about uh, two or 300 properties in total between the north side and the south side of the river that stand to be seriously, seriously impacted, possibly to the point of not being able to be repaired. If we get another flood event, 
the equivalent of a 2010 or 2000 flood event. So you know, the government, you would expect, is getting advice on that. And when they release uh, their report, the information on the remodelling, we hope it comes with with some sort of an allocation uh, to, to get engineers up here on the ground to do some resurveying and uh, considering what they might be able to do to mitigate against the problem into the future. Is the levy working? Oh, the levy system's working for what would you call 60% of the growers along the river, which is all well and good. You don't wish any misfortune to any of those growers. It's good luck to them, but you can't put something in place that adversely affects what essentially is 37% of the uh, growing district. So it has to be addressed quickly, otherwise this summer a seven metre event will total some properties and you know there's no recovery from it, there's no recovery from your loss of property value, you know your loss of crops and your income. It's just something the government needs to address ASAP, we can't just keep suffering in silence. Yeah, just throwing you know, money at fixing a hole when you don't fix the problem ain't going to fix it because the next river flow, we're going to have the same issues again over and over. So how many times do you want to go through the, the same problem? You're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars in property values where you just have to walk away from because they're not going to be sustainable to grow on because the next big river, more damage is done and so on and so forth. And um, I don't think any government department should let that happen for something that's not the fault of any grower for their growing practices or anything like that. It's a, uh, it's a man-made structure that's diverted the water to where it is now. So obviously they can engineer it out and um, we can get some soil back in and re-establish our properties and start growing again. Banana grower Phil Byron talking to James Liveris about that situation that many of Carnarvon's farmers are in right now. This is the country hour, 19 past 12. And as James was just telling you, the McGowan government made a re-election promise to immediately establish a $1 million fund to support fruit and vegetable growers impacted by that flooding event. But almost five months on, State Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan admits nothing has actually been done to help anyone. This has been immensely frustrating for everyone involved, but there are so many hurdles to actually getting this soil. We have had all sorts of environmental native title planning impediments to actually getting the soil. So I do understand, I share the frustration of people that this has taken so long. We are advised now that it will be uh, sorted out in the next two weeks, but I absolutely share the frustration because every time we interrogate it, there is a new problem. Okay, so... You're confident in two weeks' time those growers will see topsoil delivered to their plantations? James, look, I I wouldn't go as far as to say that I am confident. This has been an immensely challenging process to uh, steer through the plethora of government entities. I am told that in two more weeks we will have the approvals in place we can then contract a provider and have the soil delivery taking place. 
but this has been something that has turned out to be incredibly hard to deliver upon and I regret that and we're doing all that we can to make sure that the agencies all across government and in the local authority know that this has got to be a priority. That funding, that immediate funding said that it would be topsoil ready for the growers. So do you think like you've let down or misled the voters? It's been five months almost. No, no. I think people are well aware from the uh, experience in 2011 that it actually takes time. Like we just don't have mountains of of soil standing around waiting to be uh, to be allocated. That we actually have to go and find the soil that is available. We have to find the soil of the right type where we can satisfy all of these competing regulatory environments. It's a a complex regime. It involves a whole variety of government agencies. There is no suggestion that the funding is not there. The funding is absolutely there. As soon as we can get through all of the uh, hurdles to have the land that we can actually access this from identified and the land delivered. How long do you think would be unacceptable? Well, I'm concerned that it is taking this long, but we've made it very clear across the department that this is a high priority and uh, it must be resolved. Obviously, there might be some rain to come in the Gascoigne, like the season hasn't wrapped up yet. If another serious rainfall event occurs, those growers west of Bibbawarra Crossing could possibly get washed away their properties. What's the long-term solution to this besides filling the holes with topsoil? What we're doing is we're looking at whether or not these levee banks have been fit for purpose. So that body of work we expect to be complete in the next two weeks. And then there's a further piece of work that we're talking to the Gascoigne Catchment Council uh, around and ask them to provide uh, some submissions, which is about what what work can we do in the upper catchment to slow this down. And we're looking at how we can sort of quantify what degree of difference that will make potentially so we can work out what would be an, an appropriate intervention in that regard and would we get a big enough benefit to warrant a big investment up in the upper reaches. State Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan speaking to James Liveris. And just on the subject of government funding flowing to communities following an emergency, the state government says it's now providing around $10 million worth of support for residents affected by Cyclone Saroja. Now, this comes in the form of various support programs and crisis accommodation. And the most recent update says the state and federal governments are finalising another package to support the next stage of the recovery and the rebuild. If you want some more information on this, just search WA.gov.saroja to get some extra details. If you do need some help... You know, things like crisis accommodation, there is a number that you can call too. It's for the Department of Communities Disaster Response Hotline. It's there 24 hours a day. The number is 1800 032 965. 1800 032 965. 24 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. 
Shortly an update from the newsroom for you, then it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology to have a look around Western Australia at the conditions this afternoon and leading up to the weekend. And then Chris Ayres is going to talk to you about his sheep rescue uh, that he went on following that rain around that Albany area over the weekend. Next stop, though, is the Kimberley. You're off to the Ord Valley, where drones are the latest weapon against fall armyworm. This invasive pest was first detected in northern WA last March, and it's since been found in crops as far south as Gingin. And so now the Department of Primary Industries and Ord River District Cooperative are doing these aerial surveys, looking for early signs of damage in maize crops. Deep Herd's Helen Sparford says the drone is a huge time-saving piece of tech. Our traditional approaches to uh, locating pests in in crops, particularly vast crops, is um, we go out on foot and we scout. We look for the larvae or the evidence of the damage on the plants in in the crop. But obviously uh, when you're dealing with hundreds and thousands of hectares, you can't look at every plant or even significant percentages of of a field. So yeah, so we've um, we've contracted the services of a, a drone operator to come in and uh, do some flights with us, and they've got some really impressive tech that enables them to fly about 15 meters above the crop and uh, take photographs, and then they process those images through um, an artificial intelligence platform that then uh, helps identify areas of damage within the crop and even can identify individual insects that the the images might capture. So we we get some pretty detailed information from a single drone flight. That must save you a hell of a lot of time when you're trying to scout for these pests. Well potentially it could and that's part of what we're looking at with the research project is you know as we're evaluating this technology um, we're looking at it at different stages of, of maize growth and whether you know at different stages of the crop you know how useful this technology could be in terms of helping us to identify hot spots but then also whether it's useful for growers in terms of management you know is is identifying it um, fall armyworm this way going to help them to um, employ uh, management tools more effectively and in a more focused way in that particular area in that little hot spot that's been identified. Wow where do you see this amazing technology taking the field of pest management especially with something as relentless as fall armyworm? Well, you know, I mean, one of the challenges that we have is identifying when and where fall armyworm is um, present in any any crop. I think that's going to be, uh, this technology can really open, open up a way to rapidly assess the when and the where. But I also think from a, a very applied um, perspective in terms of precision agriculture and precision applications of uh, pesticides and even uh, releases of biological control agents, you know, we really could be seeing a much more focused uh, approach to pest management, particularly for uh, a pest like this, where if we can manage fall armyworm early in crop establishment, before those populations build up into those devastating state uh, numbers, then we're going to save growers a huge amount of money and reduce the amount of pesticide that's going into the into the system. 
So, so one day this drone <laughs> above us, it, it could be actually targeting those hotspots and, and applying the, the pesticide or biological elements itself one day in the one future. Day. Sounds one like day. science fiction. <laughs> well, yeah, or science fantasy. I don't know. But, but no, there's, there's definitely um, been studies done overseas and, uh, and people are working on those kinds of applications now um, here in Australia. So I, I think we're on the cusp of something really transitional. Just having a look at some of your data that you've been taking around the valley, how is everyone travelling with fall armyworm? The fall armyworm is definitely here and present. What we're seeing from our trap monitoring anyway is that numbers are probably not quite as high this year at the same time as they were last year, but um, we've still got a lot of season left to go. So again, it's, it's, it's about the population and, and how that transitions over time. But the, the growers are really um, managing very thoughtfully and um, really interested in, in keeping this pest at, at low numbers throughout the season. Deep Herd's senior research scientist, Dr. Helen Sparford, ending that report from Courtney Fowler. And for more information about fall armyworm identification, you can visit the Deep Herd website and report any suspected damage to the Pest and Disease Information Service. It is bang on half past 12. Tony Carr is here with an update from the newsroom. Hi, Tony. Good afternoon, Belinda. Two women have pleaded guilty to charges related to their attempt to have a baby girl circumcised in Perth. The women were charged with conspiracy in March. They've pleaded guilty to conspiring in Canning Vale to commit unlawful genital mutilation. The baby girl was two weeks old at the time in January. Police said they were alerted after the women asked a doctor to perform the procedure. WA has recorded no new cases of COVID-19 overnight. The state's total remains at 1,020. Health authorities are monitoring two active cases. An alert has been issued for travellers who have recently returned to WA from Queensland or New South Wales. Anyone who's attended an exposure site in either state must self-quarantine for 14 days from the date of potential exposure and undergo a day 11 test. And the Deputy Nationals leader, David Littleproud, says Barnaby Joyce should be given an opportunity to show he's learned from past mistakes. Mr Joyce resigned as Deputy Prime Minister and Leader of the Nationals in 2018 following allegations of sexual harassment by a female party member. He denies the allegations and yesterday returned to the party's leadership. Belinda, I'll be back with more news at one o'clock. Thank you for that update, Tony. It's 29 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. And still to come between now and the news at one o'clock, off to Muche for the results of the sheep market today. John Testro going through that for you just before one. And also taking a look at Woodside's plans to develop the $16 billion Scarborough project off WA's northwest coast. And especially considering there are such big questions about the future of the LNG industry Um, in face of climate concerns from the customers and also the investors. Shortly you'll hear from Woodside's acting CEO, Meg O'Neill. First though, off to the Bureau. And Noel Pusey, how's it looking around the South West Land Division today? Uh, A little bit quieter, Belinda, than the last couple of days, uh, which is good. uh, High pressure ridge starting to form over sort of central parts of the state and uh, to the south of that onshore southwesterly flow continues some 
some cool southerly winds, but also uh, um, uh, some shower activity as well through southern uh, agricultural districts, really the south coast and southwest district, and uh, parts of the southern Great Southern and into the goldfields as well, uh, and also along the Euclid coast as a, another quite deep low to the south uh, moves a little bit nearer to the state, and we might see an increase in those uh, the winds, uh, quite gusty conditions, but also um, perhaps some, some more thunderstorm activity in the uh, sort of Esperance to Cape Arid area along that far east and southeast coastal section of the uh, the uh, the, ag- um, the yeah, southwest land division. Uh, the low will stay south of the state. It's really just the tail end of um, sort of a band moving through there late this afternoon and evening. Um, pretty pretty decent swell running down there. Quite dangerous surf and uh, higher than normal tides. And also those gusty winds won't, won't make for a great day out on the water down there. But uh, really, I think the land area is just the, the main main thing. Will be it's still very cold and uh, and windy. Uh, quite cool conditions there. Some light showers continuing there for even tomorrow as the uh, the low moves further east towards South Australia and the onshore southerly flow continues showers um, along mainly coastal parts, but uh, through the Eucla as well. And then uh, as the ridge starts to develop and move a little bit further east during Thursday and Friday, things start to clear up a little bit. Maybe some showers uh, in the morning on Friday, but otherwise starting to clear as that ridge builds across uh, sort of southern parts of the state. Um, it looks uh, not too bad, but uh, conditions sort of overnight tonight into tomorrow, again, for the next few few nights as well, I think minimum temperatures will be quite low. So a uh, number of places close to zero degrees last night, um, similar sort of conditions t- tomorrow, uh, t- tonight and also the next night as well. So fairly light winds and relatively clear skies over inland parts there will uh, allow the temperature to drop right down. Obviously, we didn't start from a very warm position either over much of the southern half yesterday, so uh, um, didn't have far to fall before we moved into sort of uh, sort of single-digit uh, temperatures through there. And that's also through much of the uh, the Pilbara as well. The, um, the cloud band that was over the central and eastern Pilbara into the interior uh, yesterday has moved east to, to move over the top of Broome and further to the northeast at the moment. So some decent falls of rainfall through there. I'm sure Rich will go through that shortly, but uh, very cold temperatures as well. Um, Barba Bar, normally one of the hottest places in the state, uh, maximum yesterday of 15.6 degrees, I think was the max there. So some very cool temps through the the Pilbara. And that has also kept the temperatures out of Broome. Uh, I think so far the max for Broome will be about 25 degrees. Um, that, that band actually starts to dissipate over the next uh, 24 hours or so, so things will ease off there. And uh, yeah, even Broome got 18 millimetres of, room, uh, of rainfall overnight, so a little unusual for this time of year, but they do get the bands through occasionally. But um, that, that ridge builds in the south, and as it does so, will tend more into an easterly flow over the northern half of the state. Uh, gusty easterly winds along the Pilbara coast over the next uh, few days expected, uh, probably strongest on uh, sort of Thursday and Friday. And um, yeah, clear conditions up there for once that band moves through. And in the south, yeah, fairly clear as well that the next sort of significant rainfall looks to be with a cold front moving through uh, sort of Sunday, during Sunday, and another significant front bringing pretty decent rainfall, continuing those, uh, the good fall for much of the agricultural areas and also the gas corn as well. Well, it sounds like they're dusting off the puffer jackets in parts of um, northern Western Australia too, as uh, we certainly are here in the, the Southwest Land Division. Where are those frost concerns, Noel, do you think, over the next few days? Oh, look at... 
sort of anywhere through. Uh, well, I think the main the main concerns will be uh, sort of the gold fields in northern parts of the southwest land division. It's just it, it's cold enough that uh, potential for some frost. Uh, look, I don't think they're going to be super extensive. Um, it's not uh, quite cold enough for that, but um, there'll be areas of sort of light frost through there. I think um, hopefully not enough to affect uh, crops too significantly anyway. All right then. And warnings this afternoon, anything about? Yeah, we've got uh, strong wind warnings and gale warnings for coastal waters really from Albany all the way across to the South Australian border along that south coast as that low moves east and uh, wind should start to ease a little bit from the west during tomorrow. Thank you, Noel. Appreciate that. This is the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia. Now, Time now to check in with the rainfall figures. And Richard, not as much as yesterday, but still some about. Yeah, and a bit around in the north, actually. In the Kimberley, Anna Plains, 29, Bidjidanga, 30, Broome, 18, Curtin Airport, 5, Dampier Downs Airstrip, 9, Derby Airport, 5, Liveringa Station, 10, and Mandora, 48. In the Pilbara, Bonnie Downs, 31, Coolawai, 20, 20, uh, De Grey 43, Indy 30, Karajini North 12, Carathas Airport 11 millimetres, Marble Bar 34, Pardue 14, Port Hedland Airport 17, Warrawagine 38 and Yarry topped it with 51. In the Gascoigne, Tamala 6, that's the only one worth reading out. In the interior, Warburton Airfield had 18. In the Goldfields, Norseman Airport, 5 mils. In the Euclid District, Air had 7 and Mundrabilla Station, 8. And then a tiny bit of rain out on the islands, Varanus Island topped it with 7 mils. And then for the Southwest Land Division, in the Central West, Alanooka, 9. Eniaba, 8. Durian Bay, 19. North Island on the Abrolhos had 10. In the Lower West, a fair few places had between 1 and 3 mils, but nothing more. In the southwest, Cape Lewin, 5. Chapman Hill, 9 mils over two days. Millianne up 6. Northcliffe, 7 to 8 mils. Pemberton, 5. Scott River, 6. Shannon, 9. Walpole Forestry and Warner Glen both had 5. And then in the southern coastal region, Albany and Bremer Bay had 6 mils. Bre- um, Bremer Bay's Deepherd Station had 11, Chillinup 8, Dalyup Park 6, Denbarker 12, Denmark 7 to 10 mils, Erinair 7, Esperance 5 to 7, Gardner 12, Hopeton 9 to 10, Jacob 20, Jeremunga Bay 18 to 34, Many Peaks and Mount Barker both had 7, Metla 9, uh, Munglin up 9 to 10, Narrick up west 71 mils over three days. Nyaril up 18, Oakmarsh Farm 8, Ongarup GRDC had 5 mils and then just north of there they had 8 mils, uh, Pleasant Valley 6, Ravensthorpe 12, Salmon Gums Research Station 8, the Duke had 10, Warrajarra 29 mils over two days. Then in the central wheat belt, Ardith 11, Babakin 8, Bonnie Rock 7, Gravel 5, Hines Hill 15 over two days, Meriden 5, Nanjinan 6, Narambeen 7, Nungaran 5, Wyalki and Yilgarn South both had 6. And then in the Great Southern region, Dragon Rocks 9, Condinan 10, Coolan 14, Lake Grace 15, Lake King, Magenta Dam, Mordetta and Mount Madden East all were clumped together with 9 mils. And then Newtergate had 13 to 14 mils, Nyabing East 7, Pingaring 5, Pingrup East 21. And 
There's some great photos on the ABC Great Southern Facebook page. Well, I say great. They're good photos, but of some damage, and it's to the lower Denmark Road. Uh, this is damage caused by the flooding from that recent storm. Underneath, Jenny's commented, uh, this is why it's not wise to drive across flooded roads, especially when the water is flowing. I would have to agree. If you were driving along there when it was flowing, you'd uh, certainly end up being in a fair bit of trouble. But also on the ABC Great Southern Facebook page, there's a photo of the strawberry farm that we featured on yesterday's program that Angus McIntosh was talking about. And there's photos of the Handerside Strawberry Farm, and you can check those photos out just to see what sort of damage there was because the water came right up there. One comment underneath has really grabbed my attention, though. It's from Kitten Stevie, and it says... And yet with that damage, their coffee shop is offering free coffees to those in emergency services uniforms. What a great local business. Go and support them when you can. And that's certainly got a a fair bit of love, that particular comment. You can see why. But as that cleanup continues from that uh, pretty devastating storm that went along the south coast, one farmer unfortunately is now bearing about 150 dead sheep that drowned in floodwaters on the uh, on Sunday night. Chris Ayres farms 30 kilometres west of Albany and he did manage to save about 20 of his sheep. He rescued them with his tinny. But he says, unfortunately, he couldn't do anything for more than about 100 other pregnant ewes that were caught by that downpour. I don't think they stood much of a chance. They tried to go to the trees for shelter, but the, the water just got too high in the end. And how many sheep did you lose overall, do you estimate? Uh, I reckon probably 150. But without counting, we won't know until after the floodwaters go down a bit more today. And so what what did you do when you arrived and when you saw what condition they were in? We tried to walk through the waist-deep water to get a few out off the banks. But then the next plan was the tinny and trying to get like a group of 20 put 10 in a tinny and took them across the flood water to the edge and then um, went back to the other 10 and put them in the tinny, which was quite heavy sort of sheep when they're filled with water, the wolves filled with water. So you were able to save around 20 sheep, is that right? Yeah, yep. And so what happened to the rest of the mob? How, how large was the mob altogether and what happened to, to the group of them? Uh, there's about 1,400. Most of them got to high ground. For some odd reason, there was just a little mob by themselves that got trapped for whatever reason. Yeah, un- un- unsure what happened really. And how, how large is your farm altogether and how much land do you estimate was flooded? Most of it wasn't as flooded as one block, but um, in this farm we got about 700 acres and probably, probably 100 acres was flooded. And that was where the mob of sheep was at the time, yeah, overnight? Yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah. Most of the other bits of the block were flooded as well, just not as high as that. It's been about 24 hours now, so what are things looking like at the moment and what sort of steps will you be taking over the next couple of days? Pretty much just let the flood water recede, probably another 12, 18 hours, probably nearly gone, and then um, get a loader and just pick them up and bury them is the only thing we can do. Obviously, we've got to rebuild, rebuild that flock that we've lost. They were mated to be lambing in September, so I suppose we've lost a fair bit there. And it'll be just up to finding some more to, to purchase and, and move forward, I think. So a lot of the 150 sheep that you lost would have been pregnant ewes, is that right? Yeah, so we, we bought them for about 240 bucks each. And then 
potentially carrying lambs as well now. And have you spoken to many other farmers in the area or have you heard of anyone else that's had similar experiences, either losing livestock or other damage to their farms? No, I haven't really spoken to many other people just as of yet. Um, Just been mainly concentrating on saving our ones first and then I suppose we'll hear about it in the next few days. Um, The power's back on, that's a plus. The lower Denmark Road and South Coast Highway are shut, making it a bit tricky for workers to get to work. But yeah, other than that, it should be open the next few days, I reckon. So if you could estimate the the rain and the wind that you experienced over on Sunday night, well, what would you put it at? It was pretty extreme. Like There was a 95 hour gust there at one stage. Yeah, it was pretty um, pretty heavy and pretty consistent when the Bureau only said it was only 20 to 40 and it didn't look like much on the radar. But obviously that, that low passed right over us and just dumped a whole heap on us. And he certainly did what he could to try and rescue as many of those sheep as possible. Albany farmer Chris Ayres speaking to Angus McIntosh. Uh, Check out the photo on the ABC Great Southern Facebook page, a shot there of some of the sheep on Chris's tinny while they were being rescued. And a few comments underneath from Lee, who says, Not all heroes wear capes. Kayleen says, I can't get to mine. And Justine's comment is, We rescued ours by boat too. And she's posted a photo of her sheep getting a ride in the tinny to higher ground. Check it out on the ABC's Great Southern Facebook page. It is a quarter to one. Over the past decade, Australia's LNG, liquefied natural gas industry, has risen to become the world's biggest thanks to $300 billion of new projects. But there are now big questions about the future of the industry in the face of climate concerns coming from customers and investors. One of those most affected by the changes is Australia's homegrown oil and gas champion, Woodside. The company is facing a make-or-break decision later this year over whether to develop the $16 billion Scarborough project of WA's northwest coast. Meg O'Neill is the acting chief executive of Woodside and she's confident the project can go ahead. It's really been phenomenal. Over the last 10 to 15 years, the industry has invested over $200 billion US, which is about $300 billion Aussie, to build the industry to a point where we are now uh, competing for the top slot globally as an LNG exporter. So it's Qatar and Australia. It's quite amazing. What about the state of the industry now? I mean, how do you think it's faring following what really did seem to be a pretty bumpy 2020? Yeah, it's actually been a bit of a rough patch with two price downturns in the last five years. Uh, 2020 was a particular shock. So with COVID, there was demand uh, decrease. And then we had uh, OPEC and Russia deciding to try to affect the market and drove prices down to unprecedented levels. Uh, We've recovered. We actually saw some very strong LNG prices in the first quarter of this year. Uh, We're seeing strong LNG prices continue and oil prices back over 70. So it's actually a very conducive environment for the industry at this point in time. There seems to be a lot of scrutiny about the prospects for Scarborough at the Mm. moment in particular. How confident are you that a final investment decision can be taken later this year as planned? So we believe Scarborough is a development for today. Uh, When we look at the reservoir, the reservoir has almost no CO2. The train that we propose to build at the Pluto site will be very low emissions intensity. 
So the product that we're going to offer to customers in Asia uh, will be low cost and low carbon. We feel like it will be very competitive in today's market. Uh, and all the conditions are lined up, so the technical work is well progressed, the execution planning, the commercial work, all the regulatory approvals. Uh, we feel like everything is, uh, is lined up for us to be able to take this significant decision in the back half of this year. There has been some talk uh, in the press and from, from critics of LNG that if Scarborough doesn't go ahead, then Woodside doesn't appear to have a plan B. What do you say to that? Look, our focus is very much on getting the Scarborough project to FID. We've been uh, working very hard on this opportunity for three years. When we look at the numbers, we see that it is low cost, it is low carbon, it is something that our customers want. So we're firmly committed to taking a final investment decision in the second half of this year. You mentioned earlier that the LNG market now, from a, from a demand point of view, is much more liquid than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. But for a project like Scarborough in this environment, where it, there is this pressure coming on, is an increasingly liquid market which doesn't have that you know, long-term offtake kind of nature to it a challenge or an opportunity? Like how, does, does it help or hinder the chances of the project? So we think a liquid LNG market actually is a tremendous opportunity for us. So if we look at the LNG customer space, uh, over the last decade it's grown from maybe 10 or 20 buyers to over 100 buyers. The number of nations that import LNG has grown tremendously as well. So as, as all of the nations in the world try to figure out how they're going to meet their Paris goals, they're seeing LNG as part of the solution. They're seeing the product that we're selling as something that will help them raise the standards of, of living for their people and lower emissions. So, so a very liquid market actually is very attractive for us. From a financing perspective? Uh, look, Woodside's in the enviable position of being able to take the Scarborough decision on the strength of our balance sheet. We do plan to sell down our equity in Train 2, which is 100% right now, uh, but we're in a very strong position to be able to progress this project. Is there enough demand, sufficiently long-term demand, to underpin the case for Scarborough? And where's it coming from, if there is? So our traditional customer base is uh, Japan and Korea. Uh, we're seeing tremendous increase in LNG demand from China. In fact, we're seeing year on year on year the amount of demand increasing, even this year. Uh, even last year with the pandemic and this year, we're seeing uh, demand growth in China. So again, these big nations in Asia where the economies are growing, they're trying to improve the quality of life and the standard of living of their citizens. And they're seeing energy as core to delivering that outcome. Uh, and they're seeing LNG as uh, safe, reliable, low cost and low carbon. So it's a natural uh, product for the future. Apia shone the spotlight on the amount of Australian LNG being sold to China. How important a market is China for Woodside? And you know, do you have any concerns about, suppose, where the diplomatic relationship between Beijing and Canberra has got mm. to? Look, we'd like to see uh, governments behave harmoniously and we recognise their attentions today. That said, on a business-to-business -business relationship, we've got very strong relationships with our Chinese customers. Uh, we've got some long-term supply agreements with Chinese customers. We also continue to sell uh, cargoes in the spot market in China. The second way we have a business-to-business -business relationship is China, in China is through some of our project activity, where we're building the floating production and storage unit for our development offshore uh, Senegal in a number of Chinese fabrication yards. Uh, and that, those relationships continue to be very effective as well. Woodside Acting CEO Meg O'Neill with Daniel Mercer.
Nine to one. Technology from the mining sector could pave the way to building an Australian space industry. Last year, Australia signed NASA's Artemis Accords, which means we're now part of an international mission to return to the moon by 2024 and eventually put people on Mars. Curtin Professor of Planetary Science Philip Bland says Australia is set to play a pivotal role in this mission, especially sharing all its skills working in remote locations. We've got, I guess, quite an interesting situation in Australia where primary industries like mining, oil and gas and agriculture are all quite distributed. They were operating sites over great distances. So that kind of remote operations, NASA has got a program called Artemis, which is their return to the moon. And that's going to involve a lot of traffic uh, between Earth and the moon, setting up um, a lot of facilities on the surface, a lot of robotic assets. And the kind of thing that Australia is really good at is maintaining and operating robots on mine sites or agricultural equipment from a distance. Uh, I think there's a real niche for us there. Where do Australia's capabilities stand on some of these questions of autonomy and remote operations relative to what an organisation like NASA might have access to? You know, if you go to one of the major mining companies and see their remote operations sites, more advanced in many ways than the kind of stuff that NASA has at Mission Control. NASA's used to operate in one or two uh, robotic assets, not a whole fleet of them. And that's something that Australia is really good at. And so what sort of potential do we have to participate in space exploration and potentially even on the moon over the next couple of years? I think you could you could imagine in uh, 10 years' time, um, I think there's the potential for Australian companies to be a key partner for NASA operating their assets as part of an end-to-end system on the moon. There wouldn't be Australian robots probably. They'd probably mostly be NASA robots, but we'd be putting the entire system together to help NASA Ice is the key element, the key resource that people are interested in on the moon. The reason is you can crack it for hydrogen, oxygen, and that's rocket fuel. And if we can make our own fuel on the surface of the moon and refuel spacecraft, we can go anywhere in the solar system. And I think Australia potentially can be a key part of that. And if that does come to pass, who would be seeing the benefits from that? Would it be exclusively... Australian companies or large miners, or would those benefits start to funnel down to other Australians? Oh, absolutely. It'd be, I think you could see a situation where over a number of sectors, the overall space industry would grow as part of that. Space sector's growing already. It wouldn't just be mining companies by any stretch. It'd be the university sector. It'd be students helping student teams and universities building spacecraft and spacecraft systems. You were saying that it might not be accurate to say that it would be an Australian robot, but it might be Australian technology that gets taken into space. Do you see it's feasible that there would be Australian tools with Australian flags and potentially even Australian astronauts going out? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's definitely going to be Australian hardware on the moon or in orbit, even in you know the next few years. Curtin Professor of Planetary Science Philip Bland with Angus McIntosh. You can read more online, search ABC Rural 
and space to do that. It is five to one. Women inside the National Party are expressing deep disappointment and concern about Barnaby Joyce reclaiming the party's leadership. Among them is Pauline McAllister, a stalwart of the party, former chair of the Dubbo Electorate Council and one of the six trustees of the National Party for New South Wales. She says these days... There's not enough integrity and decency left in political parties of all persuasions. And I don't think you can just turn the other cheek and completely forget what took place some years ago. And I don't honestly believe that Michael McCormack was doing a bad job. I think Michael McCormack's somebody with integrity and decency. He may not have been the greatest media personality, but I don't think that detracted from his ability to work for the people of the bush. Nationals MPs, who indeed are female, Michelle Landry and Anne Webster, have come out expressing concern about what the leadership bill will mean for female voters. What are your thoughts on that front? I do believe it will. And I think that women aren't people who forget very quickly. And I do believe that a lot of women won't forget the events of some years ago. And I think it will affect the female vote, I'm quite sure. What do you think needs to happen to, I suppose, rebuild trust in some cases amongst some female voters? I just think that there needs to be a lot of work done, maybe from the organisational point of view. What do you think would be the first step that, that may need to be taken? Is it a matter of Barnaby Joyce speaking directly to female voters about the events that occurred before he stepped down? To be honest, I don't think they listen to him. And that is Pauline McAllister speaking to Claudia Gambor. To the markets now, and 7,500 sheep and lambs sold at Mushay today. John Testro, can you run through the prices? Good afternoon, Belinda. Store lambs today dominated proceedings and they met uh, strong grazier and feedlot competition, particularly uh, up to 20 kilos carcass weight to be $5 dearer. Prime trade and heavy lambs, 21 kilos uh, plus, remained firm. Ram lambs were $5 dearer on a better selection. Hoggets remained firm. Heavy weathers gained $15 with very few pen, but mutton eased $5 to $10, no doubt due to two major processes being in shutdown process, uh, and uh, that's due to maintenance. Now, we'll run through the details quickly. In the lamb market, the lightweight 0 to 12 kilo Lambs sold to graziers from 40 to 88. They were up by $5. The 13 to 16 kilo range sold to graziers from 80 to 140, up by $5. And the 17 to 20 kilo range sold from 120 to 165. Uh, up uh, $5, both weight grades near 820 cents a kilo carcass weight. In the 21 to 22 kilo range, um, they sold from one, uh, I beg your pardon, from 153 to $188 a head at near 800 cents a kilo carcass weight. Prime lambs, 23 kilos plus, were of outstanding quality and they sold from 174 to 221 at near 810 cents a kilo carcass weight, but firm for both weight grades there. Ram lambs supply uh, improved with the better heavier types at 141 to 200, up by $5. Best heavy hoggets were firm and they sold from 130 to 226 at near 660 cents a kilo carcass weight. U mutton market uh, included a mix of weights and grades with rates generally uh, firm on the under 25 kilo range. The medium weight bonus 20 to 24 kilos sold from 100 to 151 
at 5.75 cents a kilo carcass weight. Prime trade weight used 25 to 30 kilos. They sold from 150 to 200 at near 6.20 cents, and uh, they were down five to ten dollars. The better quality heavy 30 kilo plus sold at 201 to 218 at uh, 16 cents. Carcass weight to be five dollars easier. Thank you, John. John Testro at Mushay today. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.